On this week's Big Tech Show, when will cars safely drive themselves on our streets? And who in Ireland is providing the technology to help them do that? We talk to one of the country's biggest automotive autonomy entrepreneurs. I have BMW Drive Assist in my own vehicle and it is much, much safer because we are all prone to distraction, especially when we're on the motorway from Limerick to Dublin, for example. We've all been there where you actually forgot a whole section of the road. So I would say if you take it from a safety perspective and it does allow you to kind of relax. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. Shachtan and Indo Askeliga. Time imon irukti yen of chakt erachor. Agus suligam a makan sha gurfeder erachor inuik kiart len of winter thing. Skilti fis turmi. Tashi dochrecha nach vetoch ara igornamyan on kestin ekol. Vien talam aginam griv orkar nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uran Siksik Saran George's husband was in court today. He previously told the court his health has been affected and his daughter is in deep emotional turmoil since her mother's death. Thanking them, Mr Justice Tony Hunt said it was an awful case from every point of view. He said the jurors had been extremely attentive and he could see from their faces it had been very hard work. Today on the Indo Daily, the murder of Uran Siksik Senendor. How did a 14-year-old boy end up a killer? Uh, the boy admitted to Gordy that he had robbed Miss Saren Dorge and that he had stabbed her near the CHQ building in Dublin's north inner city uh, centre on the evening of January the 20th, 2021, when she was walking home from her job as a cleaner. She died in hospital nine days later. The artery carrying blood to her brain had been severed by the knife. On the same day as the murder, the boy also tried to rob another woman and threatened a shopkeeper, leaving him fearing for his life. When he was born, he was addicted to heroin. His mother and father were both drug addicts. His grandmother took him and raised him as one of her own, but obviously he had to be weaned off heroin. That was the very first thing that had to be done. I'm Kevin Doyle, and today on the Indo Daily, I'm joined by court reporter with the Ireland International News Agency, Owen Reynolds. We look at the case of a child killer who targeted a woman in a deserted city centre. Owen Reynolds, January 2021, it was a time of heavy COVID restrictions. The city centre where we are now was bare of people. There was nobody around and a terrible tragedy struck that has played out in the courts over the last few weeks. You've been there for that. Can you tell us what it was? Yeah, well, it was the fact that the streets were deserted in that way does play a big role in what happened to Uren Setzig Serendor on January 20th, 2021. She was one of the, I suppose, small number of people who was still going to and from work at that time. Uh, she worked as a cleaner in one of the tech companies called State Street in the Dublin Docklands area. And she'd do work from do a shift from 5 to 9 p.m. And she was walking home just after 9 p.m. having finished her shift on a fairly desolate, deserted part of uh, the the Docklands there between Custom House Quay and St. George's Dock. This is around the CHQ building. A lot of people right will be familiar there, yeah. with, with that, just on the Liffey, basically. Right along the Liffey. And like there was CCTV showing 
her movements actually from the State Street building to that point and then afterwards onwards. But it really did show that she was very isolated and she would have been, to anyone who was looking for somebody to rob, she certainly probably did stand out. And, and this young lad, 14 years old at the time, was looking for somebody to rob and he had spent much of that day looking for people to rob. She wasn't his first victim and uh, she wouldn't be his last either. So he spotted her walking along there. He was on his bicycle. Um, he approached her on the bike. On the bike, uh, he obviously demanded money from her, and he tried to take her handbag from her. But she didn't let go of it. She grappled with him. She fought back. And during that struggle, he took out a knife that he was carrying, and he used it to stab her once in the throat. And that injury caused her death later. That well, actually, nine days later. And tell us a little bit about Oren Setzig. Who who was she? So she was a Mongolian lady. She was married to Ulambayar Surankor, and they had two children. Um, and they decided 15 years before her death, they had decided to move from Mongolia to, um, to Ireland, I suppose for a better life, for a job, get some money, um, a better future for their children. Um, she very much wanted her daughter to go to Trinity College and her husband has spoken about that in recent weeks to various reporters about um, how he's very determined now that his daughter will, ha- will achieve the things that, his, that her, uh, her mother wanted for her. But um, she worked hard. She worked, as I say, as a cleaner. She did from five to nine each evening whilst also looking after her family. Um, and... Uh, you know, it was mentioned by the judge at the end of the trial that these are probably jobs that a lot of people here don't necessarily want to do. They're tough jobs, they're hard jobs, and she was a hard-working person. She was a PE teacher back at home. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, maybe um, she even took a little step down in order to be able to work here. Now, her, her husband didn't speak, does not speak English, and I, I think probably her English wouldn't have been great either, so that probably was a, a barrier for her too while in working here. Um but yeah, so that's what she was doing at that time, and she had been doing for about 15 years. That's but from, from what we know from what you heard in the case and what the family have said, they did achieve that original goal of having a better lifestyle in Ireland. Yeah, they had their home in Dublin city centre. Um, their children got that ed- the education that they wanted. They got, um, you know, the, the, the daughter is still, as far as we believe, planning on finishing her, completing her education at Trinity College. And um, yeah, the, the son, I believe, has moved, is not living in Ireland at the moment, but that's as a result of the fact that he's got the opportunities to do as he pleases now as well. So take us back to that evening then. It's not long after nine o'clock. She is attacked by this 14-year-old, but initially it doesn't actually seem as serious as it turned out to be. Yeah, so anyone looking at her at that point probably wouldn't have realised how serious it was, but it appears that she did know that this was very severe because she called her husband immediately and uh, she told him, I'm dying. That was his evidence in the trial. She was able to walk and obviously she was able to talk, so she walked as far as Connolly Station, which is where her husband met her. Now, he sprinted from their home in such a hurry that he realised later on he was still wearing his slippers. So we're talking 100, 200 metres? Yeah, very close by. So he met her there, a taxi driver who noticed what was going on. Um, he called emergency services, so they arrived pretty quickly. Again, the streets would have been pretty empty, so it wasn't difficult for ambulance to get there. So they arrived within a few minutes. And the paramedic who gave evidence in the trial, or one of them anyway, 
said that initially her vital signs were fine. He checked her. She seemed fine. But he was concerned about the location of the in injury. So he phoned ahead to the Matter Hospital and to get the emergency uh, department ready. And he put her in the back of the ambulance and uh, brought her over there. But as they were traveling, he noticed that things were going downhill for her. She was beginning to panic. She was saying that she was struggling to breathe, that she couldn't breathe. And by the time he got her to the emergency department, she had already turned blue. And it would appear that she'd already succumbed to her injury at that point. She had a, a pathologist report would later show that she had suffered a severed carotid artery. And that just meant that there was no blood going to her brain and she died from a lack of oxygen to the brain. And I remember at the time there was a lot of Garda appeals. There was, it was kind of, every the news was all COVID at the time. And this was kind of one of the few stories that actually broke through into the news cycle separate to COVID. The Garda initially didn't have too many leads on who the attacker was. No, they didn't. There was CCTV and they were able to find that CCTV. But in I saw it a number of times in court and it wasn't, particularly clear and it wasn't exactly focused on on that incident it was focused on something else and this was just taking place kind of off the off the center of the screen they had two days earlier received a complaint from a young woman about a stolen bicycle and she was able to identify the person um, who had stolen her bicycle and from that Gardie decided that they were going to call to this 14 year old invest just in investigating that stolen bicycle nothing to do with her and set sake um, stabbing but when they arrived at his house they discovered that um, his grandmother was in was very upset and she told the Gardaí immediately, she said, he's after doing something terrible. We were on our way to the Garda station anyway, and more or less, thank, thank goodness you're here, you know? So they spoke to the boy. He was upstairs in his bedroom and he was very emotional, very upset. And he told the Gardaí straight away, I did it. I was responsible. I stabbed that woman at the IFSC. And that's where the investigation went from there, how it focused on him. Obviously, Owen, I'm conscious that a story like this is about the victim, but there is another part of this that I think is worth exploring, which is how does a 14-year-old become a killer on the streets of Dublin? The boy had a difficult start in life. The most difficult start, I think you can imagine, because, um, and again, this is coming from his, his grandmother who gave evidence uh, in the trial and sentencing hearing. When he was born, he was addicted to heroin. His mother and father were both um drug addicts and are both drug addicts. Um, he, his grandmother took him and raised him as one of her own, but obviously he had to be weaned off heroin. That was the very first thing that had to be done. She took him after that, raised him as one of her own. And she said that growing up, he was actually, you know, he was sports mad. He was very good at hurling, she said. He was very good at boxing. And those are the things that really occupied him. And he was hanging around with, you know, a group of lads that she approved of. But then she traced back the change to one single incident, which is where his birth mother approached him in the street just after he was coming away from uh, sports training. And she told him who she was. She demanded that he give her a hug. And when he refused to hug her, uh, she threatened to hurt herself, to cut herself. Uh, and that was his introduction to his mother. And she said, the grandmother said that following that, he never went back to sports after that. He started hanging around with a different crew. And these guys were all into stealing bicycles to pay, to get money to pay for drugs. And that's what he started doing. And, you know, he has, at the time that he, he met Ern Setzeg that day, he already had 31 convictions. Um, 
Five of those were for robbery. There were a couple for attempted robbery. There were for, you know, possession of an article, you know, an offensive weapon. He also had a pretty strong drug habit at that point. He was using a very large amount of cocaine, it would appear, at the age of 14, and he needed money to pay for that habit. And that's what he was doing that day. So did he put up a defence in court, or did he, as that day when the, the guardie arrived at the house, go, it was me? Well, he always accepted that it was him, and he always accepted responsibility. He pleaded guilty to manslaughter, in fact. Well, the jurors had been told, Vivian, that the focus of this case was solely on the intention of the boy, who was 14 at the time. And his lawyer said there was no evidence of any intention to kill Miss Saren George. Uh, they said that he was intoxicated, uh, and the only evidence was that he intended to steal from her. This was an incident that ha- that evolved, where he all he wanted to do was rob her. He just wanted money so that he could go and buy drugs. His intention was not to kill her. And he said that, uh, you know, he just lashed out, but uh, without any intent. You have to have that intention to kill or to cause serious injury in order to be found guilty of murder. And he was saying that essentially he didn't have that intention, that this was just something that spiralled out of control. And before he knew it, he'd already inflicted this injury. Now, the jury didn't accept that. The jury found that it was proven beyond a reasonable doubt that he did at least intend to cause her serious injury when he took the knife out and he used it on her. And now there is another probably important circumstance to put in there that probably informed the jury's decision to a certain extent, which is that 30 minutes later, he approached another lady and he tried to steal her mobile phone. And again, this lady fought back. She held the mobile phone. She put a bit of distance between him and her. And uh, she said that as she was trying to get away, he lifted up his jacket to show her the same knife, presumably the same knife that he had already used on Ernst Setzig, and he told her, um, that could have ended a lot worse for you. So the jury may have, from that, thought that, well, you know, he's already done this once and now he's really letting people know that, you know, he has this ability to inflict very serious injury on people. There was also another incident in a shop. Yeah, that was much earlier on the same day where he went into a spare shop on O'Connell Street and he approached the owner of this of the shop with a bag of sweets, I think, behind his back. And he just told him, I have a blade and, you know, what are you going to do about it? And the shopkeeper said that he was very fearful. He, he actually thought that he might die at that moment. But luckily, I suppose, for him, another employee came into the shop and that seems to have scared this uh, 14-year-old off. And so he left the shop. But again, as he was leaving, he, le- he left with a kind of a, a threat, you know, you don't know who I am, you don't know who you're messing with, kind of a comment. Now, Owen, you're used to covering murder trials, you know, with most people just read about them in the paper or see them on the news. Like, in terms of the scale of the evidence here, the f- a 14-year-old boy, a, a woman who is clearly vulnerable in the fact that she was isolated on the night in question. This must be up there with one of the most, the hardest trials you've had to sit through. It is unusual. And it was something that was created out of circumstances because, you know, you had that deserted street, you had people who who were vulnerable because of that, because if you were walking, the person walking on that street, you were more vulnerable than you would otherwise be. And then also you have this terrible affliction in the inner city of these young lads who are... (laughs) committing these kind of crimes because they're addicted to drugs and they want, they need to get more drugs. After almost nine hours of deliberations, a jury of six men and six women found the teenage boy guilty of murder by a majority verdict. The 16-year-old defendant, who can't be named as he is a minor, put his head in his hands after the verdict was read out. Members of his family were in tears. 
there was, and perhaps it's because of the unusual nature of this, there was a problem initially in the sentencing. Mr. Justice Tony Hunt felt that he couldn't proceed on the original day. Can you explain that? Yeah, so the the Children Act uh, deals with sentencing for um, young offenders, but it would appear that when it was written, it didn't really take into account that children could actually commit really very, very serious offences. And it holds as a kind of a principle that um, any custodial sentence should be a last resort when it comes to children. But obviously, that's never going to be appropriate where a child has committed an offence like murder. Um, A non-custodial sentence can't be considered really as as a possible uh, option. So... The courts have been left in this situation where um, they don't have much guidance as to what they should do. And judges have kind of developed their own their own methods of how to deal with it. And one of the things that they typically do is they'll impose a very lengthy sentence for a crime like this, such as a life sentence or maybe a 15-year sentence, but they'll build in a review to that. So after maybe eight years, 10 years, 12 years, in this case, 13 years, um, another judge in the Central Criminal Court will be asked to review the person that that um, defendant's position, how they've done since they went into detention or since they were transferred into prison, um, what kind of attempts they've made at rehabilitation and decide then what should happen to them afterwards. But a big problem with that is that there's no provision in the Children Act for uh, that judge to suspend any portion of a sentence partially or fully. And the suspended sentence are a very useful tool for the courts to have because it incentivizes people to be of good behavior as they reintegrate into society for that first 12 months or two years or three or four years even after they uh, are released from prison. And that's obviously a very important time because it's a complete, you know, it's got to be a complete shock, especially for someone going into custody aged 14 or 15 and then coming out maybe in your late 20s or early 30s. What do you do? How do you reintegrate into society? You're, going f- to- you're losing out on your formative years where we all, you know, turned 18 and gain the right to vote and drink and do and, a, and the probation, whatever. Yeah, and the probation services can help a lot with that. In this young man's case, you would imagine one of the big things they're going to need to consider is that he has this addiction behind him. They're going to want to make sure that when he's released, he's not taking drugs and he's not hanging around with people who might influence him in that direction. So the probation service can put in place um, safeguards to prevent to prevent him from relapsing into that kind of company and relapsing into that kind of behaviour. So that's what the judge wants, essentially, is that there will be those safeguards in place. Um, They might also be able to help him with regards employment or education, um, any therapy. And he will. It is worth, just for listeners, reminding us that he'll be 27, 28 at that 13-year review. Yeah, he'll be 28 years old when that review comes comes around. Now, that doesn't mean he'll be released after 13 years. I think there has been a bit of confusion in the confusion sphere that is uh, but life, Twitter. The point is life doesn't mean life in this country. At some point beyond that, he may come out in his 30s, for example, probably seems a, a likelihood that he would be released at some point in his 30s. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean, he could, if he continues on the trajectory that he's currently on, which according to Judge Hunt, you know, he's done very well in detention, then he could well be released at the age of 28. And <clears throat> Um, you know, there has to be some provision there, though, to help him at that at that point. Uh, I think to just send him away from Mount Joy or Wheatfield or wherever he ends up and just send him out into the wider community and, and leave him without any kind of network would be a dereliction, probably. Were the victim's family happy with that sentencing as it played out in the end? Well, they thanked the judge. They thanked the DPP. Um, they seemed um, to accept it, that, that that is how it is. Today, her family, um, her husband, Umbala Serenkor, 
her uh, daughter, Suvda, her son, Tamir, would like to thank the public and thank everyone for their support. Thank you so much. They will never get over what happened to her. Her husband has said that, you know, that she was the love of his life. They were together, I think he said 30 years, more or less childhood sweethearts. Um, he's talked about what a sweet and loving person she was, what a great mother she was, and there's no way any family can recover from that. And Owen, the killer is 17 now. It's it's three years on, effectively, from when this happened. Has he shown any remorse? From the very moment that he spoke to Gardy, the guards and admitted that he had stabbed this woman, the guards who spoke to him said that, accepted that he showed remorse, even at that very early point. He was extremely upset, uh, crying and so on. Now, the probation services, it is um, um, something that they look for when they're dealing with young offenders, or any offender, in fact. And it is something that they've remarked on, that he has shown good progress. He does have some insight into the, um, <clears throat> into the consequences of what he did. Um, and he's continuing to work with those services uh, on his addiction and, and other things that may have contributed to that sort of behaviour. So it does appear that he has shown remorse and it was accepted by the trial judge that he has shown remorse. So all of those things, that, that is in there. Um, one would hope that he can see that there, you know, the very serious, devastating consequences of his actions. My thanks to Owen Reynolds, court reporter with the Ireland International News Agency. I'm Kevin Doyle, and today's episode was produced by Mary Carroll, researched by JJ Clark, with sound by John Smith. Archive clips were from Virgin Media News, RTE News, and Independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow, and leave us a review. <laughs>